0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. So I've got just two points this morning. I'm gonna take this in two bites. And, uh, but before we look at these two stories, by the way, one of them I call the plant story and the other I call the seed story. Before we look at them, I just want you to see that there really are two stories because this is a familiar parable, the parable of the sower or the soils. And, uh, and it's not until just recently that I've recognized that there is a story within a story, that there's a story that disrupts the story. And I, I, want, I want you to see I'm going to do a little bit of an English major thing. So if that's going to make your eyes glaze, then just hang on for uh, you know, t- 120 seconds, and I'll get you back in a minute. But some of you are, are not going to believe that there are two stories unless I really show this to you. So what I want you to see is that story one, the plant story, begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 and goes down to verse 9. And it stops, it's disrupted, and it picks back up again in verse 13 and goes through 20. That there are two stories can be seen in four ways. There's a shift in audience, a shift in location, a shift in the verbs, and a shift in the subject matter. So just very quickly, the audience of story one is what? A crowd. You see that in verse one. That story is a story Jesus tells to a crowd, That's the audience. In the second story, though, he's not talking to a crowd anymore, is he? In verse 10, look, he's alone with those who are around him, Uh, with the 12. So this is a a different audience. Now, location shifts as well. Uh, At the very beginning of this uh, story, the, uh, the, the plant story, Jesus is where? He's beside the sea, he's outside, he's in a boat. That's obvious, right? But where is he in the beginning of the second story in verse 10? Well, he's he's alone, which is another way of saying he was with them privately. And it seems like he's inside because he's making a contrast with those who are outside. So wait, wait, now Jesus is with the smaller audience and he's inside. He's, He's apparently in a house. What's up with that? Now, uh, the, the audience shifts, the location shifts, the verbs shift. I told you last week, if you were here, Mark uses the dramatic present, which is a way of saying, and then he hits the ball, and then he runs to first base, and then the catcher, you know, that's the dramatic present. He's using that in the plant story, although our translation doesn't show that, and he's not using it in the seed story, verses 10 through 12, he uses the past tense there. He's telling something that happened earlier and and, the, and then the, the final thing is that there's a change in subject. In the, in the plant story, the subject is one particular parable, the one we call the parable of the sower. But in the when he's inside with his disciples in another location, the story that he tells them there has to do with all of the parables. Notice it's plural. And They ask him about all the parables, and he's talking about all the parables. Now, just to show you that Mark uh, has put these two stories together, I want you to look at the end of chapter 4, verse 35, and I want you to see what happens here. Uh, on that day... Mark writes on that same day when the evening had come he said to them let us go across to the other side of what of the lake and leaving the crowd behind they took him with them in the boat Now wait a second I thought they were in the house No they're still in the boat so now what we find out is that Mark has stitched two stories. Chapter 4 is mostly all happening in one scene in a boat at the lake, and it ends after he tells a series of stories, and he gets, he's still in the boat and that same day, just the way he was, Mark says, he's going to go across the lake. But in the middle, right here in the middle of this first parable story, Mark's got him somewhere else. And you're going, wait a minute, what's happening here? Uh, is Mark telling the truth about this? Okay, one last nerdy thing, but it's, it's of interest to you historically. I want to take you to Rome. And I want to read to you an ancient extra-biblical text that explains what Mark is doing when he writes this gospel. Back up. We don't know who wrote the gospel of Mark. The gospel doesn't tell us, but there's an ancient tradition that associates it with John Mark. John Mark uh, was a follower of Jesus, but he wasn't one of the twelve. And at the time of the writing of this book, we think he was in Rome with Peter, who was one of the twelve. John Mark is a follower of Peter, who learns about Jesus from Peter's preaching and teaching in Rome. And then Mark collects uh, these uh, stories, and he puts them together. But the question is, why doesn't he put them in order? Okay, let's look at this text together. You may not be able to read it, but I'll read it to you. This is written by a guy named Papias uh, between eighty ninety 90 and AD 100. And here's what he writes. This is not in the Bible. This is very close to his writing. He says, Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately, notice it's accurately, everything he remembered, though not in order. Did he catch that? It was accurate, but it was not in order of the things either said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him. That's John Mark. But afterwards, as I said, followed Peter, who adapted Jesus's teachings as needed, but had no intention of giving an ordered account of the Lord's sayings. Consequently, Mark did nothing wrong in writing down some of the things as he remembered them, for he made it this one concern: his one concern not to omit anything that he heard or take any false statements in them. What's Papias saying? He's saying, when you go to a gospel, particularly Mark in this case, don't expect it to be a chronological story of what Jesus said and did, but you should expect it to be absolutely accurate. Now, this offends some of our modern sensibilities, but this is the way in the first century, this is just the genre of literature that it was. It was theologically driven. The point is not necessarily to tell you what happened to whom when. The point is to tell you who is Jesus. And the best way to make sense of the plant story is to tell the seed story right in the middle. See, that's why I want you to see that. I want you to be ready to interpret the plant story in light of the seed story. That's true. In all of these sandwich stories, it's the disruption in the middle, the story that Mark tells in the middle that gives light to the whole. I see Many of us, when we get to this middle story, we just kind of skip over it. I mean, that's what I do. But you can't skip over it without getting the meaning that Mark has. You might miss the meaning of the plant story if you skip over the seed story. All right, so that's the background. Now, look. Let's look at these two stories. First of all, the plant story. Keep your Bible open, if you you will. And you'll see that story really getting going in verse 3, where our teacher and our Savior Jesus says, Listen, a sower went out to sow. Listen, a sower went out to sow. Now, can I give you just real quick three background points? First of all, this is our story. As we saw when we all stood up, um, different people respond to this different ways, but everybody is encompassed in this story. Everyone's in the story. So it's our story, okay? And then the second thing to notice is this is about the source of change. And what is the source of change in the story the way Jesus tells it? The sower goes out to sow, and he throws seed on different kinds of soil, and it causes growth. And what causes growth? Well, it's the seed. And what is the seed? We're going to find out in verse 14, the sower sows the word. This is a Jewish expression for the Bible, the scriptures, the teachings of God. So it's the word of God that is the source of change in the story. That's what Jesus is saying. So it's our story, and the source of change is the word of God. And then the third thing we notice here is that it's about the possibility of change. Pretty dramatic. Soil becomes fruit. Possibility of change. But it's also about the resistance to change. Because one quarter of the soils show change, and three quarters don't. And there's something in you and me that resists change. That, that was what in the song, and I love this part of the song where it says, you know, when people change, they gain a piece. He does that. They gain a piece, but they lose one too. When your life changes because you want something, and you get something when your life changes, but you know what? You give up something. The familiar, the old. And that's what's so hard. Because your your life keeps wanting to revert to that old thing. Keep wanting to snap back. You know, New Year's resolution, how long does it last? You know, I can get to February, but then I'm just just the same old George. And so that's so this passage shows that Jesus understands that. that We don't always want change, and we can't always achieve change in our lives. right, So. Here's the question then. Well, what is the difference between those who change and those who don't in the plant story? And which one am I? The answer to that question gives me my first point, and, and it's this. Change is a process of growth. I want you to remember that. Change is about growth. It's a process of growth. This is the way that Jesus thinks about Change. As indicated by the way he begins the story, a sower went out to sow. Now, that's surprising coming from the lips of a carpenter, don't you think? This is his first parable in the Gospel of Mark. And I would have expected Jesus to say, a carpenter went out to his wood shop, right? What does Jesus know about gardening, about farming? I don't know, but he seems to know that if you want to know anything about change, if you want to experience change, you've got to think about it organically. You've got to think about it as growth. And, and, and that's not the way you and I tend to think about it. You know, when, when you're in the garden, it's, it's change that comes naturally. It's change that's based on the conditions of the soil and the sun and the water. It's change that's gradual. When's the last time you saw your plant change? I mean, when you, when you, when's the last time you actually saw it change? It's imperceptible, right? And that's the way Jesus says change happens in our life, but it's so powerful. When I was uh, younger, I had a job. I, I was breaking up concrete, you know, and, and I just manual, breaking up concrete. And it is hard, but you know what, what can break up concrete really easily Something about that big. And it gets in a crack, in a sidewalk, or a road here in Seattle, or a courtyard. And given enough time, all of a sudden there's a huge oak tree, and the plates of concrete just so easily lift away. And the whole thing is ruptured and fractured. It's powerful. That's that's growth. And the problem is that you and I tend to take ourselves not to the garden, but to the woodshop, where growth is not natural. It's forced. It's structural. It's architectural. And here's how it works. In the woodshop, how many of you are woodworkers, by the way? Do we have any here? And you know, in the, <laughs> I asked that question in the last service. I kid you not, I saw one hand and it had four fingers on it. I'm telling I'm totally telling you the truth. It was the only hand that went up. I shouldn't, I shouldn't joke, but um, it does happen. You know, I want to just say the workshop is dangerous. When's was the last time a gardener lost a finger, okay? In the, in the, but this is where we go when we, when we change. And, and uh, I, don't, I just saw like a handful of you out there were willing to say, yeah, I'm a carpenter. But I want to ask you this. How many of you ever bought something from Ikea? Okay, now all of us. We, okay, so we So we can all say that. And how does it work? Well, it's a terrifying situation, right? You come home and you just got the box. And then you open up the box and there's just all these pieces. It's so chaotic. And your job is to make it ordered. And, and so you, there's a, a sheet of paper that has a blueprint, a picture, you, and a set of instructions. And you work very hard. And, you know, in the workshop, it's labor. And you're the one doing the work. It's so different, isn't it? F- from a garden. And, you know, life grows and things change. If you're a a mom or a dad and you've got a baby who's eight months old and you can't wait to get them out riding their bike, you know, what do you do? You don't build a child. You don't build a baby biker. You don't say, we're going to just pull out this leg and make it a little longer, pull out that leg. And, and you hold out a picture, you know, of Greg LeMond and, uh, and you play all the, you know, the biker music and you put them on top of a bike, you buy them the cleats, you know, and there's the baby and you're going, okay, do it. I've given you the steps. I've shown you the picture, you know, now do it, right? But I want to tell you, some of us have turned our children into projects, Some of us have turned our spouses into projects. Some of us have turned our employees or coworkers into projects. And we've taken them to the woodshed, and we said, this is what change will look like in your life or in my life. Now let's make it happen. Jesus doesn't take us to the woodshop. He takes us to the garden. And he says if if it's going to happen in your life, it's going to be natural. It's going to be a process of growth. All right. I want to move on to our second point. But before I do, I want you to just share a few implications. I think there's a shift. If you're going to move your mentality from a, a, a wood shop uh, mentality to a garden mentality, you have to make at least three shifts. And one is to start focusing on the conditions and not the rules. The conditions. A- am I living among the conditions for growth? Right, and, you know, in agricultural terms, it would be soil and water and sun. You know, in your life, it's some other things. What are the conditions you need for growth? I mean, I think it has to do with uh, worship and, and a community of people who care for you and you know all kinds of things. And, and then, secondly, if you're going to uh, make this shift, you've got to think about health and not performance. It's not, did, did I do this? Did, did I did I uh, get it right? Did I? No, it's more about, are you healthy? Do you have within you what you need to respond to these conditions? And then the third uh, piece, the shift that you want to make here, is from progress, as to progress from achievement. You want to notice the incremental changes. I know some of you go, hey, I've been following Jesus a long time. I, I, I came to faith in him. I invited him into my life as Lord and Savior, and I've been following him faithfully for six months. <laughs> and I'm not changed yet. Well, you know what? It takes time. And you got to look for little bitty steps of progress, and you're like, the measurements are so fine uh, in organic growth. So those are the implications. Now let's look at the second story. That's the plant story, and the point is that change is a process of growth. Now the seed story. Don't skip over this part. You know, the reason, by the way, many of us skip over is because it seems kind of awkward. It doesn't remind us of Jesus. There's talk of insiders and outsiders and talk of seeing but not really seeing. And it feels a little judgmental, so we just skip over it. But you can't do that because this is the moment when Jesus disrupts the first story with a revelation of who he is. We're going to meet him in the disruption. And here's what he says in verse 10. This is what Mark says. When he was alone... Mark remembers this other story that sheds light. And he says, oh, yeah, there was this time when Jesus was alone with the 12. And they were in a circle around him. It wasn't just the 12 disciples, but others also. They were circling around him. That's the phrase that we had last week. Perry, those who are around Jesus, those who make Jesus his center. He was with those people. And then what happens? Well, three quick observations here. First of all, he's not talking about. He's talking to. Jesus is now in this story, as Mark remembers engaging interpersonally. With his disciples. It's not a formula. It's a face-to-face conversation in the seed story. He's talking too interpersonally. And, and then he's saying this to them. He's saying, there are people outside who, who look but don't perceive, this is verse 11 or 12, who may indeed listen, but they don't understand. And the effect of that is that they don't turn and they're not forgiven. The implication, by the way, of that is that those of you who are here in face-to-face interpersonal relationship with me are not those people, and therefore you are people who look and perceive. You are people who hear and understand, and you are people, therefore, who turn and know you're forgiven. So it's a face-to-face interpersonal encounter with, with Jesus Christ Himself. It results in forgiveness. And the, the final observation is more a question that you have to consider this: what do they see? Well, of course, they see Jesus because he's there at the center of the circle. But how do they see Jesus? Who is Jesus to them? And to answer that question, we've got to go back into the Bible, the Old Testament, because that's what Jesus does. He quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And I I want to take you back there. Um, If you have a Bible in front of you, would you just flip back to Isaiah chapter 5? Actually, let's start there, work our way backwards. It's on page 552 of the Pew Bible, and here you're not going to be surprised, I don't think, to find out that Isaiah is working with an agricultural image. He's working with growth that doesn't work out so well. See, Jesus didn't invent this. He pulls it from the the Old Testament, and Isaiah uh, is given by God to see God's people as a a vineyard. In in verse 1, There's a song, right? It's just like the song that we just heard saying. I imagine God's got some pretty good moves. And so he's singing with great conviction and passion about his people. It's a love song, Isaiah tells us. It's about how God loves this vineyard. But it becomes fruitless. This is a vineyard that does not abide in the love of their creator. Instead of yielding grapes, in verse 2 at the end, it, it yields wild grapes, in verse 6, we find it's a, a vineyard that's overgrown with briars and thorns. In verse 10, we see that it's a vineyard that it's 10 acres. It yields only a homer. Just a handful of seeds come out of this. In verse 24, we see that the root is bad. It becomes rotten, and there's no the blossom goes up like dust. That's an image for you. And so there's just no change here. And in essence, this is an oracle of judgment. This is God saying to his people... Unless you come to me and respond to my love, this is what it's going to look like in your life. It's not a wasteland. Just this is the burned over district season of uh, Judah's existence in the eighth century BC. So what everybody else sees is is judgment, death, and disaster, and bad stuff. But that's not what Isaiah sees. And that's what I want you to to, to flip the page. Well, I don't know, I flip the page. I look here now at Isaiah chapter six, verse thirteen. In fact, let's read this one verse aloud together because this is the thing that Isaiah can see that nobody else can see. This is Isaiah's call, by the way. Let's read verse 13 together. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The holy seed is its stump. He said, wait a minute, what is that all about? He says, well, you know, if this keeps up in Israel, then pretty soon it's just going to be burned again and again and again. And people will say, you know, there used to be a forest here. There used to be terebinth and oak, massive trees. But now, look, it's just all charred. It's just a wasteland. And if you walk around, you can see in the burnt a stump right there. And and what Isaiah sees in that stump is a holy seed. What, What could that be? Have you ever been hiking? And the cascades or anywhere else, and you see a tree that's been struck by lightning, and hollowed out, and burned down to the ground, and it's all charred and black, but then you look and you see what? One green little sprig that's coming out. It's new life coming out of death. Isaiah sees the gospel. Isaiah sees Jesus. Isaiah looks at death and sees life. Isaiah sees God predicting that someday. A seed will be born. An offspring will come into the world. A holy offspring, the Son of God himself, we find out later, would be born to a woman, to enter into time and space, to bear judgment. See, this is a picture of the cross, isn't it? A stump that is the seed. Jesus bears the judgment that you and I deserve in order to be the beginning of new life, to bring forth new life in our lives. And so what does it mean for you to think about Jesus as a a stump that's a seed? First of all, it says something to me about grace, the power of grace. What is grace? It's getting what you don't deserve. It's God giving you life when you deserve death. It's God giving you commendation when you deserve uh, accusation. It's God giving you um, reprieve when you deserve judgment. It's God giving you hell when you should go to heaven. This is the way God, is. this is his heart is revealed someday in a seed, a holy seed. And that's who Jesus is. And so you could just see Jesus when he's looking at these circle of followers in this house saying, you see what nobody else sees. And that's why you know you're forgiven because you know why I came. I am the son of God. Who's come to suffer in order that you might have hope and life and live for all of eternity. Basically saying, this is John three sixteen. When you look at me, you know, for God so loved the world he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is grace. It's the working grace is the only thing that will change in your life. And let me say something about grace. What grace means is that you don't have to change in order to be loved. I want to get. I want to make sure you get that again, because you know, you may know that there's something in your life that needs to change, and what you need to know before you know how to change it is simply that you don't have to change it. That God loves you just the way you are, unchanged. That was the case for Isaiah. Look, it was in a story of grace. I, uh, he's taken up into the heavenly throne room. He's having a face-to-face encounter in the house of God with God himself. And God says, I'm looking for a team. I'm building a team. I'm looking for players on the team. Who do we got? And Isaiah goes, oh, my gosh, they're seraphim and cherubim swirling about. Everybody's holy in here except for me. And he says, woe is unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I know. I'm not on the team. And God says, you there. You're the one I want. He looks at the sinner in the room. He says, you're... My beloved son, you come to me. (laughs) As I am, as you are. You want me to change first? We don't have time for that. And he sends him out. He says, well, then here I am, send me. See, God's ready to receive you today. He knows all about your stuff. And you know what? He can fix your stuff. He can't. And he will someday if you let him. But he loves you so much, he's not trying to fix your stuff for his sake. He's just trying to love you. He doesn't need to fix you to love you. Grace and the holy seed. And the other thing is about the seed is that the seed is Jesus. And and he's a person. And he's standing there right in front of them. And the fundamental problem for people outside is that they're still outside, that they haven't heard his invitation to come in and be with him and to see him themselves, to relate to him, not as a concept or as a teacher, as a philosophy or as a set of practices or insights, but as a person. Jesus is the word of God made flesh, the apostle tells us. Let me give you an example of this. Many years ago, uh, there was a man named Mike who had a disruption in his life. He lost his job. And losing his job caused him to realize that he had a bigger problem. And that problem was he couldn't hold his alcohol. He drank too much. It was because of that that he also lost his wife, lost a lot of his friends. One day, a Christian came along his path and loved him. Just took an interest in him that was kind of surprising because he wasn't the kind of person he thought Christians had any interest in. What he could see in the church looked a lot more like judgment. But here was a Christian who couldn't see judgment, not in himself, not in Mike, but love and grace. And he embraced him. And he said, hey, Mike, I'd love for you to come and be a part of the group that I'm a part of. It's really helpful to me. It's a small group. And we meet weekly. And Mike came with him. And he, he sat in the circle of guys. And he told his story. And he said, you know, it's not a pretty story. But he let it all hang out there. This is kind of who he was. And the guys around him, turns out it was a safe group to do that in. These guys would confess all kinds of stuff with one another. And, he, and they said, That's who we are too, Mike. And they put their arms around him physically, literally. They gave him a hug, but they embraced him as one of their own. In fact, one of the guys said, Hey, Mike, uh, I'm wondering if you would be willing to paint my house. Could I hire you to do that? Well, Mike wasn't a painter. And this guy uh, wouldn't have hired someone who wasn't a painter, but he needed his house painted. That was true. And he thought, uh, here's a guy that doesn't have an income source, and maybe it could help him. So he does it. And you know what happened to Mike? He grew a lot. Today, Mike has a very successful painting business. Today, Mark, Mike is involved in a church that loves him and that he loves. It's not perfect, but it's a grace church. And And today, he's remarried, and today he's... Uh, A member of that small group. He's the one who oftentimes brings the Bible lesson because he's become a scholar of the word because he's seen the power of the living word. Jesus Christ used the written word to encounter him very intimately in his life and to walk with him and most of all to help him grow. So just some implications here. If the first point is change is a process of growth, the second point is it changes a person who shows us grace. Change is a person who shows us grace. Implications? First of all, be forgiven. Don't miss that. Don't look at Jesus and miss the fact that you're forgiven. Don't don't hear the good news, as we try to preach here every single week, but not understand that it's for you and that you're forgiven and that you don't have to perform for anybody. Secondly, become familiar with Jesus. This was what we said last week. Get to know him. Get to know everything about him. Or just see him as a, you know, the five letters of his name, Jesus, or a little flannel graph, Jesus, but get to know him in all this richness. Here's a stump who becomes a seed. And then trust him and be his friend. I love it that when I feel overwhelmed in life, it's that simple. I don't have to figure everything out or answer all the questions. All I have to do is trust Jesus and let him be my friend. To pray, to bring the disruptions to him. And then to receive the gift of his Holy Spirit and know that he walks with me through it. So what I'm trying to say is it changes a process of growth. And it's a person who shows us grace. So now grow in grace. Final question. What would happen if you walked outside this door and you went into the parking lot today and Jesus was sitting in your car? I want you to think about that for a second. Because I saw a news article in the Seattle Times not long ago about a guy whose car had been stolen and uh, he went to work 12 days later, got out of work at the end of the day and he went to the parking lot and his car, coincidentally, had been parked in his own, his usual parking spot. It had been stolen three miles away. But one in a million chance the thief had brought the car back and parked it right in the owner's parking lot. And he had forgotten that it was stolen. Just reached in his pocket, his keychain out, put his key in the car, opened up the door, sat in there and tried to start his car until he saw that the ignition had been all smashed in. He goes, oh my gosh, my car had been stolen. And I want to tell you, some of us are like that guy. Our ruts are so deep, our patterns are so ingrained, that we just keep doing what we're doing without even thinking about it. And, and, and life itself has been stolen from us. What if you went out to that car this Sunday and Jesus is sitting there, How would you respond? What would it mean to you? And you might say to yourself, I don't really want you in here, Jesus. And it's, Don't take it personally. It's that I respect you too much. And um, you're a great guy, and I know I'm not a great gal, and I really want you to respect me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to. you can stay. I'm going to go back into the church and get my life cleaned up. And then when I got it fixed, when everything changes just the way I want it to be so that you'll be able to respect me too, then I'll come back out and we'll go for a ride around Green Lake. That's the way a lot of us treat Jesus. Or would you enter the car and take a seat beside him? Would you let him talk to you? Would you let him give you directions? Would you let him drive? Keep in mind, he lived in the first century. It's your car, (laughs) right? No, this is the one who knows everything about you, loves you. Yes, you'd let him drive. Yes, you. Let me close by reading the words of Robert Farrar Capon, who was a cook in New York City and a great commentator on the Bible as well. This is what he writes about the parable of the sower. He says, The parable of the sower does indeed call call for a response from us. But that response is to be one that is appropriate not to the accomplishing of a work, but to the bearing of fruit. The goal it sets for us is not the amassing of deeds. Good or bad, but simply the unimpeded experience of our own life as the Word, capital W, abundantly bestows it upon us. The unimpeded, unimpeded experiencing of our own life as the Word abundantly bestows it upon us. And that, as I said, is entirely fitting because the parable is told to us by none other than the Word, capital W, himself whose final concern is nothing less than the reconciled you and me that he longs to offer his heavenly Father. He did not become flesh to display his own virtuosity. He did so to bring us home to his Father's house and sit us down as his bride at the supper of the Lamb. He wills us whole and happy, you see. And the parable of the sower says he will unfailingly have us so. If only we don't get in the way. Let's pray. Gracious Jesus, help us to see you as you are. You come so discreetly into the world and into our lives. It's so easy to miss you. You come and serve us with such gracious humility. It's so easy to miss the significance of your presence in our lives. Let us hear your word and see you as you are and face into you daily. Fill us with fresh measure of your Holy Spirit and walk beside us. And most of all, let us simply rest in you and get out of your way. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.